Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. It looks like we have a great crowd in the room today. I know we have some people worshiping with us in our modern hymn service in a different part of our building. And I also know we have a bunch of people worshiping online as well. I want to welcome in a few of them. First of all, I want to welcome in Hillary. She's at Hillcrest right now. Hillary, we are praying for you. We're glad you're worshiping with us. We've got Giovanni, who's in Sperry right now, worshiping with us. And Joey, let me make sure I get this right, who's on the West Delta 29 oil platform in the Gulf of Mexico worshiping with us as well. So if you're here in person, we you put your hands together. Welcome in our online family. So glad you guys are joining us, and I'm excited that you're here as well. And I just cannot say enough how much I love our church family and love being a part of what God is doing in this place. This past week, as most of you guys know, was spring break week for Owasso students, and we had three different mission groups go out to serve both our community and different places across the globe. And so we had two groups. One went to New Orleans, and the other one went to Mexico. And I've got some group pictures here of them as they went out and they shared the love of Jesus with people in need. They did a lot of manual labor, but they also talked to people about Jesus and just made a tremendous impact. And these were students and young adults and others who gave up their week of spring break to go and love like Jesus. And I think that's awesome. But then here locally, we had over 50 junior hires who gave up their week of spring break to go throughout our community and shine the light of Jesus. And I am just so proud of our church, especially the younger generation for being so faithful and carrying out the mission of Jesus. And that's just a part of what's going on here at First Church. You guys know there's a lot of things happening. Like for instance, over the past two weeks, we've had 26 people baptized into Christ. And that is incredible. Yeah, that's worth celebrating. And we're still seeing God move as more and more decisions are being made. And I just cannot express how excited I am to be a part of what God is doing. Because there are some churches out there that are praying right now for a revival to take place in their midst. That's not our prayer. We're not praying for a revival. We're praying for the revival to continue. That God has been launching here for some time. That he's been orchestrating here for some time. You are part of of a work of God right now. And that is just so fun and so exciting to experience. And so that makes what's going to be happening here in a few weeks even more important. You just heard Easter is just a few weeks away. It's hard to believe that it's this close, but it is coming and we need your help. We're going to be offering four different Easter Sunday services. This is the most services we've ever offered on an Easter Sunday. We're doing this because of all the incredible growth that we've been having in order to accommodate people. But also we know this is a prime opportunity to invite those who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ to come and hear about his resurrection. And so people are more likely to respond to an invitation to church during Easter or Christmas than any other time of the year. And right now, There is something stirring in our culture. People are hungry. So we want to challenge you to invite your friends, your family members, your neighbors to come out for Easter Sunday. But also we need your help in serving. If you can serve at one service and attend another with your family, that would be awesome. And if you are one of our normal attenders and you can come to one of our extra services, we're going to have our typical 9.30 and 11 o'clock services. But we've added two more services, 8 a.m. and 12.30. If you can come to one of those additional services, that would be great so we can 
and make space for more people at our 9.30 and 11 o'clock services because they're probably going to be packed. But anyway, we hope that you are inviting people to come to Easter Sunday. I think it's going to be one of the biggest Easter's we've ever celebrated here at First Church, and I can't wait. And this week, we are launching into our Easter series. And as we get started with this sermon today, I just want to ask you guys, are you guys aware that there are certain words in the English language that carry with them either a positive or a negative connotation? You know, there are some words that just when you hear them or when you see them, they immediately trigger either a positive or a negative reaction. Like, for example, if you hear the word lazy, most of the time people think of something negative, you know, when they hear the word lazy. But if you hear the word friendly, well, that that triggers a positive response, right? And so we're going to do a little test here. I'm going to put some words up on the screen, and I want you guys to vote, basically, for whether it's a positive or a negative word in your mind when you hear it. And this is how we're going to vote. When I put a word up there, if it triggers a positive response, then I want for you to cheer and clap and all that good stuff. But if it triggers a negative response, I want you to boo, okay? So can we practice this? Can we do this real fast? Okay, so let's pretend I just put up a word that triggers a positive response. Cheer and clap for me. Awesome, yeah, you guys are with me. Now, let's pretend I just put up a negative word. Boo for me. Yeah, I know that was just a test, but it makes me feel bad to be booed on stage. It really does. I mean, I just don't like that. It's not good for my self-esteem. But anyway, let's see how we do. Let's put our first word up here, vacation. Yeah, for the most part, the word vacation triggers a positive response. Okay, how about this one? Traffic. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, nobody likes to be stuck in traffic. If you like traffic, there's something wrong with you, okay? How about this next example? Ice cream. Yeah, that's good. I mean, my kids hear the ice cream truck music and they get all excited. So yeah, ice cream triggers a positive response. How about this one? Alarm clock. Yeah, pretty, yeah, we don't like that, do we, at all. How about this last one here? Texas Longhorns. Uh, Yeah, the one thing that OSU and Oklahoma fans could all agree on is nobody likes Texas, right? So I figured I could put that one up there. If you're from Texas, I'm sorry. I'm I'm not partial, okay? But if you're, besides for Kentucky, but if you're from Texas, I'm sorry. There are certain words that just trigger a positive or a negative response. And here in just a second, I'm gonna put one more word up there. And I don't want you to vote out loud. I just want you to think about it for a second. Think about it in your head. And I want for you to... Figure out, does this word trigger a positive or a negative response? And it's this word right here, empty. When you hear the word empty, what comes to mind? Most of the time in our culture, when we hear the word or see the word empty, I think that it brings about a negative response because people make statements like, I'm just running on empty. And that's not a good thing. It means you're getting ready to wear out, right? And then when you get into your car and you see this right here, you know that, well, I know I'm in my wife's car, but no, that's a different story. Sorry, I had to do it, sorry. It was a joke, kind of true, but still a joke, okay. But when you get into your car and you see that, it's not a good thing, right? Empty is a bad thing. Just the other day, I was watching March Madness. I know it doesn't surprise you guys. I've been watching March Madness for the past couple days. And by the way, my Kentucky Wildcats are still in it. And I know you're not surprised that I'm wearing Kentucky this morning, uh, but there's a story behind this shirt. One of the little five-year-olds in our church, his name is Hunter, he gave me this shirt for Christmas, and he said, I want you to wear it in a sermon. So I saved it for today. I'm wearing it for Hunter today and for the Kentucky Wildcats. But I'm wearing it today because he told me to wear it, and I'm doing it for him. Thank you, Hunter. Appreciate the Christmas gift. But Uh, my Kentucky Wildcats are still in it. Back to the sermon. Uh, None of that matters. But anyway, and I've been watching all these different games. And the other day I was watching one of the first four games and Mississippi State was playing Pitt. I'm not sure if you saw this, but at the end of the game, there's 2.7 seconds left in the game. 
And basically, Mississippi State had the ball underneath their goal. They had a chance to inbound it and score, and all they had to do was score, and they would win the game, okay? And this is how it played out. Take a look at this video. Davis. There it is. Here's oh, four for three for the win. It is no good. Ball put back, no good. And Pittsburgh advances in the NCAA tournament. Breaking. I didn't show that because it was like a buzzer beaters because they had three opportunities to score and they missed every single time. And I was listening to one commentator and he said they had plenty of chances to win the game and they just came up empty. Normally, when we hear the word empty, it's a negative thing. And throughout scripture, sometimes the word empty is used in a negative way. But there are other occasions when the word empty is actually a positive thing. It's a positive thing because God uses something that's empty or emptiness for his good, or he turns someone's emptiness into something good. The most important example of this came on the morning of the resurrection when Jesus was alive after he defeated death. And remember what happened? The women, some of, her, some of his early followers came to the tomb and they found the tomb empty. And at first they thought, this is a bad thing. They thought, did somebody steal his body? Did the authorities move him? But then an angel appeared to them and said, he is not here, he has risen. And in that moment, they knew that the empty tomb was the greatest news the world had ever heard because Jesus had broke the grave. And because of that, hope could be experienced by everyone who follows him. It was the greatest news of all time. Empty was a good thing. And we're gonna celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday and talk about what the empty tomb means for us today. But leading up to Easter, we're gonna look at different examples in the Bible where people experience emptiness and how God ended up using that for good or it ended up being a good thing after all. And today, we're gonna look at a passage of scripture that I believe is gonna teach us this message. And it's the message that with God, there's always more to the story. If your life seems empty right now, if your life seems incomplete right now, if you feel like that you're missing something, don't get stuck in the scene you're in. Because with God, there's always more to the story. And that's what's going on in 1 Kings chapter 17. That's what we're gonna study today. So if you have your Bibles or Bible app on your phone or tablet, we're gonna be in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 17. And what you need to know is this is a really, really dark period in the history of God's Old Testament people. See, the nation of Israel has been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, also called Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah. And in the northern kingdom, over a 200 period year history, they had 19 kings, and all of those kings were really, really bad. They were evil, they were corrupt, they went against God, and they led the people astray. But out of all of these bad kings, probably the worst king that the northern kingdom of Israel ever had was this guy named Ahab. Ahab was a bad dude. And don't take my word for it. Listen to what the Bible says. It says in 1 Kings chapter 21, no one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's side as Ahab did. Now, how would you like to have that reputation in scripture, you know? I mean, God's word will never pass away, it says. And so this is going to be remembered forever that Ahab was a guy who sold out to evil in a way like nobody else did. Now, there are other people who have reputations in scripture that are good reputations, like for instance, David. David is known for being a man after God's own heart. Was David perfect? No, David messed up a lot. But in the end, he was known for being a man after God's own heart. I wanna be known like that, you know? Or what about, 
I don't know, Abraham. Abraham also messed up a lot, but Abraham was known for being a friend of God. Or Moses, Moses messed up a lot, but he was known for being someone who talked to God face to face. He had that personal, intimate relationship with God like we all want to have. I mean, there are guys who have some really great reputations in Scripture, but that's not the case for Ahab. Ahab was known for being a guy who sold out to evil, unlike anybody else. But there's more to this verse. It goes on to say, no one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did. And look at this next line. Under the influence of his wife, Jezebel. Now, if you haven't heard of Ahab before, you may have heard of Jezebel. Jezebel is one of those names that carries a negative connotation with it, right? Jezebel doesn't have a great reputation. And here's the thing, Ahab himself wasn't a strong dude when it came to his faith, but Jezebel, Jezebel was extremely evil and she influenced him, she coerced him, she led him even further away from God. Side note, if you are single or if you are dating somebody right now, be careful who you date, because if you're not careful, you will date somebody who will lead you further away, further away from God. You will date someone who will influence you in such a way that they pull you away from church. They will turn you away from God's calling on your life. Be careful who you date. Same thing when it comes to friendships. Be careful who you allow to influence your life. We are supposed to love everybody, love like Jesus, but be careful who you allow to have influence on your life because the Bible gives us this warning, bad company corrupts good character. And that's what happened for Ahab. Ahab wasn't strong by himself, but Jezebel, with her, this was a recipe for disaster. And so they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it was a really, really dark time. I mean, it was so dark. It's not just that the morals were bad for the people, but the nation started to practice things like child sacrifices and temple prostitution. I mean, things got really, really bad, really, really dark. And in the midst of this dark period in history, enter a man named Elijah. Elijah was a man that God called to stand up to the darkness, a guy that God called to speak for him in the midst of a culture that wasn't listening to God. And Elijah had a tough task, but he trusted God. And this is how God works. God often uses people, will raise up people to speak on behalf of him, to speak his truth in the midst of a culture that isn't listening to him. This is how God works. God typically does not change culture, change society through military battles or human strength. He changes a culture by raising up people who are willing to faithfully serve him and live out his truth in the midst of a world that isn't listening to his truth. And I think right now in our culture, God is in the process of raising up a generation that will speak his truth, a generation that will live out his truth, a generation that will love like Jesus in the midst of a world who doesn't know who Jesus is. And I believe that as he raises up people who will stand up for him, we will see our culture change. And maybe God is leading you to do just that. And my question is, are you listening to him? Elijah was one of those guys. And Elijah goes before Ahab to let him know, Ahab, 
You're not listening to God. You know better. You're not listening to God. And this is what Ahab and Jezebel were doing. They were worshiping false gods. And the primary false god that they worshiped was this god named Baal, B-A-A-L. Now, I've always said Baal. Most people that I've been around pronounce it Baal. I have heard a few people pronounce it Baal. And that's just weird to me. I just don't like that. So I'm gonna say Baal, like Baal of hay. And the way that I remember it is, if you're gonna worship a god like Baal, you might as well pray to a bell of hay, okay? That's, that's how I think about it, okay? So, but Baal is how I'm gonna say it. If you say Baal, that's fine. I'll just laugh at you later, but that's a different story. So I, it's fine, I don't care. But anyway, he's not real, so it doesn't matter. But Baal is this false god, and Baal is the god who they believe is over the sky and the rain and all that kind of stuff. And so Elijah says to Ahab, all right, if you think Baal's real, I'm gonna prove that he's not. God's gonna prove that Baal's not real, and so it's not gonna rain. It's not gonna rain for an indefinite period of time. And this is gonna cause a drought and a famine, and this is gonna lead to economic collapse. And until you get it, this is how things are going to be. Now, God does not cause every drought that happens in our lives. Let me just say that. But sometimes he allows for droughts to happen in order to give us a wake-up call. You know, there was a word that I used just a second ago on the screen, alarm clock, and you guys booed when you heard alarm clock. Now, nowadays, alarm clocks are on our phones most of the time. That's how I get woke up. But years ago, and maybe you still do, people had alarm clocks that look kind of like this one right here. Anybody ever had an alarm clock that looks something like this? Yeah, a good number of you. I had one, and I hated this thing. And the reason why I hated this thing is because it made a sound like this. Are you ready? Yeah, it makes you cringe, doesn't it? Nobody likes that sound. And even though I hated that sound, and even though I didn't really like my alarm clock, my alarm clock saved my skin, saved my hide numerous times. Because if it hadn't been for my alarm clock, I would have missed appointments, I would have missed meetings in school, I would have missed tests and exams and finals and all that kind of stuff. I didn't like the sound that my alarm clock made, but looking back on it, I'm grateful that I had it. And this is how this drought is working in Ahab's day. Nobody likes it, but it's needed. A wake-up call is needed in order for God's people and Ahab and Jezebel to realize what they are doing. This is God's alarm clock going off saying, wake up and realize what's happening. But Ahab doesn't seem to get it. Ahab doesn't seem to care. And so the drought happens, and it happens for an indefinite period of time. And Elijah... Well, he's taught something during this period as well. God doesn't waste this moment just in trying to wake up the people. He uses this moment to help strengthen Elijah's faith as well. And so God tells Elijah, I want you to go to this certain brook. This certain brook is gonna have water in it. When everybody else is struggling to find water, you're gonna find water in this one certain brook and you're gonna live by yourself in the wilderness basically. And I'm also gonna provide you with food. And this is how God says he's going to provide Elijah with food. Are you ready? The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So how does God bring Elijah food? Through ravens. Now, this is kind of weird if you ask me. I mean, I'm not a big bird fan anyway. Maybe you are and you love birds, and that's great. I just don't really like birds, and ravens are like dirty birds, right? I mean, who wants a raven bringing you food, like in its beak and its little, what are those called, like 
I don't know, claws? I don't know what they are, but anyway, bringing, bringing food to you? I mean, that's kind of gross, and what is this all about? I mean, think about it. Elijah is probably wondering, God, I didn't sign up for this. When I signed up to be a prophet, like, I thought I was gonna be like leading people. I thought I was gonna be speaking before thousands. I thought I was gonna have all this influence, and now I'm alone by some brook in the middle of nowhere being fed by these creatures right here. I mean, that's probably not at all what he signed up for. I mean, this isn't exactly Uber Eats, is it? I mean, this is ravens bringing food. And so Elijah's probably thinking, what is this all about? But what is God doing? God is making Elijah a little bit uncomfortable, but still providing for him. To let Elijah know that you need to trust me. I will get you through the season you're in, even though it might be a little bit uncomfortable, because I have something bigger for you. And if, if Elijah cannot trust God when it's a little bit uncomfortable, how is he going to do even bigger things for him? And the same is true for us. Sometimes God will put us through small tests in order to see if we are able to handle something bigger because he has bigger plans for us. He wants to use us in greater ways. And the question is, will we be faithful to him when it's just a little bit uncomfortable? Because if if we're not gonna be faithful to him when it's just a little bit uncomfortable, we're probably not gonna be faithful to him when we're a lot uncomfortable, even though he has bigger plans for us. So God's teaching Elijah something. And this goes on for some time. We're not told the exact amount of time that this takes place, but this goes on for some time. And again, why does God allow this to happen? Well, I once heard somebody put it like this. God refines before he assigns. God has to refine us sometimes to make sure we are ready for what the next assignment is. And Elijah's next assignment is going to be even tougher than the one that he has right now. But God is testing him because faith that can't be tested isn't real faith. If your faith is never tested, how do you know it's authentic? How do you know it's genuine? How do you know it's real? Sometimes I have people come to me and say, I don't understand why God's allowing bad things to happen to me. And I'm like, did God ever promise that it was gonna be easy? Once sin entered this world, we gave up comfort, right? Once sin entered this world, and so bad things happen to both good and bad people alike. And the question is, and this is what makes us different from the rest of the world, is through our bad times, we trust God, and God continues to provide. Now, he may not provide exactly like we want him to. I mean, Elijah wasn't getting, you know, like five-course meals, and it wasn't from, you know, like Uber Eats or DoorDash or something like that. It was from Ravens, but still, he provided for Elijah, And so the question is, are you trusting him? Because it's in the waiting that we learn to really depend upon God. And so if Elijah had said, God, I'm done. This is stupid. I don't want to live by this brook by myself and encounter ravens every day. I mean, I'm done, God. If he had done that, then he would have stopped too soon in God's story for his life. See, there's always more to the story. And where you stop in the story is a matter of trust. When you stop and you say, I'm done, and you act like this scene that you're in is it, then what you're saying is, God, I don't trust you to get me through this scene to go to the next scene, the next thing that you have in store for me. Because there is going to be another assignment. And we find out that assignment in 1 Kings 17 at verse seven. It says, sometime later, the brook, the brook that Elijah had been drinking from dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, came to him again, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he's moving on from ravens in a brook to a widow in Zarephath that will take care of him. Now, 
Let me point out a couple things here. The first thing that I want to mention to you is that the brook dried up. Did you catch that? Now, who originally sent Elijah to the brook? God did. God sent Elijah to this brook, and then the brook dries up. Now, that may not make any sense to us. Why would God send Elijah to a brook that would eventually dry up? Because the brook wasn't the source of his life. It was a resource that God was using to provide for his life. And that's why we need to make sure that we don't worship our resources in this life. Because resources come and go. Resources are given to us by God. But the source of our life is always God. So eventually, the brook dries up. And God says, but I'm still going to provide you with life. It's just not going to be that resource anymore. And so Elijah is then sent to go to, well, an interesting place. Zarephath. Now before we get there, I just... I just want to remind you that what hinders us when it comes to living for God and growing in our faith is not always a lack of resources, but it's a lack of God. It's a lack of faith in him. And so I could see Elijah being like, okay, God, I am ready to move on. That's fine. But now you want me to go to Sidon? Now, what you need to know about this place, Zarephath and Sidon, this was the center of pagan worship. This was the heart of Baal worship. I mean, you've probably heard people talk about like they live in the Bible Belt and some people say, I live in the buckle of the Bible Belt. Well, this area where God is sending Elijah, this was like the buckle of the Bell Belt, okay? I mean, it was bad there. And this is where Jezebel's family is from. This was a rough area and yet God is sending Elijah into this area. Why? Because God doesn't want us running from the darkness, God wants us invading it with his light. This is what God does. Listen to what Jesus tells us in the New Testament. Jesus says this, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. They don't hide their light. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. That's what we're called to do. And sometimes in our culture today, as we watch way too much news <laughs> and we start to hear all these bad reports and it gets us down and depressed and discouraged, it's easy sometimes to say, I just give up. Like I'm just gonna hide out in my house and I'm just going to pretend like that the world around me isn't falling apart and I'm just gonna make sure that I pay my bills and raise my family and that's it. I'm not gonna do anything else. Or other people, that's not how they are. They just want to complain all the time. They just want to get on social media and just complain and complain, complain about how everything is so bad, but then they never do anything about it. And so they're like the old man, just, you know, like screaming at the wind or whatever, you know, just mad about things. I don't think God calls us to do either. God calls us to live for him in the midst of a world that isn't. And when we do, we shine the light of Jesus. And that's why you've heard me say numerous times before, what a great time to be the church. Because we are living in a culture where I believe Satan has overplayed his hand. I think Satan has tried numerous different things to keep God's people at bay. And I see God's people rising up over the next few years in a way like we haven't experienced in our lifetimes. But the question is, are we willing to listen? Are we willing to shine our light in the midst of the darkness? Are we willing to live by faith and trust God even when it's uncomfortable, even when we are stepping out of what we have always known are we willing to trust him and depend upon him and do life his way because if we are willing to be faithful in the midst of these dark times we will shine Jesus light like never before and I believe that's what God is calling us to do and that's what Elijah has to do he travels a hundred miles from where he was at this time 
to go to the buckle of the bell belt, to a place that didn't acknowledge God at all. And there, God says, I want you to find a widow, and this widow is going to provide for you. Now, in this culture, the poorest of the poor were widows. And they're in the midst of an economic collapse. You would think God would say, okay, I'm gonna send you to this wealthy person who's got some extra resources and they will provide for you. But that's not what God says. God says, I want you to go to the least likely person. I want you to go to the one person who's among the poorest of the poor, a widow, and she will take care of you. And what's interesting is, look at, Bible, uh, look at Elijah's response. The Bible says, so he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called. He called out to her again. And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied. Now notice what she says here. Not her God, your God, Elijah. As surely as the Lord your God lives. I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And I'm sure Elijah's like, so is that a hard no? I mean, what are you? <laughs> this is who God told me to go to, you know, what's, what's up here? Nice to meet you too, lady, you know. I mean, get this, this lady is saying, listen, I don't know you. I don't know your God. The only thing I know is I got nothing left. This woman's on empty. I got nothing left. And I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna make my last meal so that my son and I can die. She's not just empty when it comes to her physical possessions. She's running on empty when it comes to hope, isn't she? She's given up hope. And look at what Elijah says to her. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Isn't that what happens when we find ourselves on empty? We start to fear things become afraid and scared. He says, don't be afraid. In other words, don't give up yet. Don't give up yet. Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. Make that meal. But first, that's a key word here. First, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. So he turns to her and says, listen, I know you're on empty right now and you've tried everything else that this world has to offer to fill yourself up, both physically and spiritually, and it's not working. Let me ask you to do one more thing. Try God. Stop trying the world's methods. And try God. Do what you said you were gonna do, but first do it God's way. First do what God is asking you to do and see if that makes any difference whatsoever. And what's interesting is the woman listens to Elijah. She does what Elijah is asking her to do. Why? Because I think she's run out of options. She's desperate, she's hit rock bottom. She's got nowhere else left to turn. She's tried everything else and everything else isn't working. So she says, okay, 
I'll start listening to God. And maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe you've tried to fill your life up with the things of this world. Maybe you've tried to find satisfaction in the culture around you. Maybe you've tried everything else that the people that you know have been offering you, but none of it is working. Can I ask you, can I challenge you? Listen to God, because he really does love you and he really does have your best interest at heart. Did you catch what Elijah promised her? I like it how this one version puts it. It says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jar of oil will not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And that's exactly what happened. The woman listened to Elijah. She did what God wanted her to do first. And sure enough, she had enough food to survive the entire famine, the entire drought. Now, again, it's not like she was having big meals and feasts and all that. It's just that her jar never ran out. She just kept having enough because God provided for her. And I think what we learn here is it's only when we give God our emptiness that he can fill us with life. It's only when we own our emptiness and say, okay, God, I've tried everything else and I'm not gonna try those things anymore. I'm gonna turn my emptiness over to you. I'm gonna give you my life. It's only when we hand God our emptiness that he can start to fill us up. And so this woman, she's taken care of. God provides for her and her son and Elijah for that matter to the rest of the famine. Isn't this a great story? I mean, if you're hearing this for the first time, you're probably thinking, man, that's a great story. God worked a miracle. That's awesome. But remember what I said. There's always more to the story. We're not done yet. We're almost done, but we're not done yet. Because this woman, even though she did what God said in this moment, she still hasn't gone all in with God yet. She's still worshiping other gods. She hasn't gone all in yet. And we've talked about this over the past few weeks. A lot of people can acknowledge God and know that God is real, but not go all in with him. That's this woman. She obeyed God in the moment, but she hasn't gone all in with him just yet. And something tragic happens. Her son, her only son, dies. He gets sick and dies. Now, God didn't cause this, but her son dies, and she blames God. She actually blames Elijah. And this is what she says to Elijah. She says, Elijah, God hadn't even noticed me until you came around, and then you brought your God here, and now he's paying attention to me. He realizes what a sinner I am, and so he's looking at all my sins, and now he's punishing me because I've rebelled against him. Well, that logic doesn't add up. That's not how God operates. That's not how God works, but she doesn't know that. So she's blaming God, she's blaming Elijah. And so what Elijah is going to do is he's gonna show this woman, no, listen, God does love you. God does care about you. And you know what Elijah does? He says, show me where the boy's body is. And he goes to the dead boy's body and he prays for God to bring this boy back to life. Now, mind you, this is an important historical note. We have no record in the Bible up until this point of God ever bringing somebody back from the dead. Now, we will have multiple examples after this occasion, but we have no example in Scripture of God ever bringing somebody back from the dead. Elijah prays a prayer that is so big, he's never heard of it happening before. And he prays for God to breathe life back into this boy so that this woman would know that God does care about her, that God does love her, that God does have a bigger plan for her life. And this is what happens. It says, then he, Elijah, stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, oh Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry 
And the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. And in that moment, this woman knew this God of Israel does love me. He does care about me. He isn't mad at me. Yes, I've sinned, but in the midst of my sin, he still cares about me. I'm still his daughter. He still loves me. He still loves my son. And this woman places her trust in the God of Israel. And what's interesting to me is I believe that this is a foreshadowing of what Jesus came to do. Because if you will remember, I said this was the first instance of resurrection. Well, we have other examples of resurrection, but the example of the resurrection is Jesus himself. And here's the difference between Jesus' resurrection and all other examples of resurrection is Jesus rose from the dead and he didn't go back to the grave. He stayed alive. And I want you to put this together just for a second. This is really cool, okay? I think it is, you may not, but I think it is. How many times did Elijah pray for the boy to come back to life? three times how many days was Jesus in the grave three days numbers are important think about this Elijah prayed for the boy first prayer no response second prayer nothing the boy's still dead but after the third prayer the boy came back alive and when Jesus was crucified one day passed and people were thinking Jesus isn't who he said he was Jesus was a phony Jesus was a fake the disciples are scattering on the second day people are still wondering how could this happen we thought he was the Messiah. All hope it was lost. But then on the third day, Jesus walked out of the tomb. And when he did, hope was brought to the entire world. And the empty tomb was the greatest news of all time. And so let me just ask you today, where are you at? Are you running on empty right now? You might look at it as a bad thing. But God could turn your emptiness into the greatest thing you've ever experienced if you'll just allow him to fill your life with his son. Because no matter where you are, there's always more to the story when it comes to God. Don't get trapped in a scene, the scene you're in right now. Remember, you're a part of God's bigger story. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for today and this opportunity we've had to open up your word. I just pray, Father, that we will be those who don't get stuck in our emptiness, but we will be those who turn our emptiness over to you so that you can do something good with you. You can fill us with your son, with your spirit, and you can live in and through us. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.